Hello and welcome to episode 47 of Coffee and Circuses. This week I'm joined by Richard Rees. Richard retired from teaching at UCL's Institute of Archaeology 20 years ago, but through a combination of his own work and the many students he's taught, including former guests of the podcast, Ellen Swift, Andy Gardner and Richard Hobbs, as well as other luminaries such as Martin Millet, his impact on Roman archaeology, particularly its methods and approaches, remains as strong as ever. In fact, as I mentioned in this episode, when I began to think about doing a podcast, I had it in mind to mainly focus on people working on Roman Britain and discuss the differing meanings it held for them. I was actually going to call it My Roman Britain in homage of Richard's 1988 book of the same name, which is actually the same year I was born. There you go. In the first of these two episodes, Richard gives his thoughts on how the study of Roman Britain has, or hasn't evolved, since he published My Roman Britain, his unique writing style, Riesian as some people call it, and why it's important that people find their own voice when interpreting the past, and how he almost got booted off of teaching the Roman Britain course at UCL. We also delve into Richard's own journey, how he started excavating as a schoolboy in his hometown of Sirencester, including when Ian Richmond stopped by in a car that went on to become famous in its own right and how he then went on to UCL to study biochemistry and subsequently became a school teacher. Now, as you've probably realised, this career trajectory didn't last, and Richard discusses how via his interest in Roman coins, a large dollop of self-determination, and Shepherd Frere's love of his mother's sponge cake, he went on to undertake his PhD in archaeology at Oxford. Now, at this point, we round off part one of the discussion, given, as you may have guessed, there was simply too much to cover in one episode, so you'll have to wait until the next one to hear about his work on Roman coinage, late antiquity, and how it feels to have had so many students go on and become influential in their own right. So, as always, thanks for joining me, dear listeners, and thanks to Richard for visiting Canterbury to record this. I realise he'll probably wince at me waxing lyrical about his influence, but I think the fact that the Oxford Handbook of Roman Britain is dedicated to him says it all. So, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Richard Rees. You said you were here for a Leibniz conference. Um, oh, that, yes. I, can't, I hadn't looked up which one it was. Um, I would guess 87. Because, yes, the English ones were usually in the seven year. So it, it can't have been 77. It wasn't nine. It's 87, uh, 1987. Okay. And we were somewhere over there. Um, well, that went well. It, it was good because we were out of the town, as it were, but in with easy access. Um, they could wander around and go and look at the cathedral. Well, we had an actual visit to the cathedral and were there for even song. Oh, nice. um, and then a reception of some sort afterwards. That, that was one of the more successful ones, yes. Okay. Some of them do tend to get a bit obsessed with forts and military careers and so on, rather than thinking about the effect, the whole effect of the army or a fort or whatever on the landscape and the people. Yeah, yeah. I, um, I've never actually been to a DMS conference. I would like to go, I've just never been in a position to be able to go, because a lot of the stuff that I study... Uh, particularly looking at Mithras, mm, mm. Uh, you know, very prevalent along the Rhine frontier, along the Danube frontier. I mean, yeah. I've been to the Danube, I've been to 
places like Carnuntum and uh, down to Budapest as well, so at Quinkum, which is fantastic. I think Carnuntum is one of the best sites I've ever visited in terms of Roman archaeology. But no, I've never actually made it to a Limes conference. But then, as you say, yeah, it's, it's interesting because my reason for going is more about the religious uh, sphere. That came up quite a bit when we were in Hungary. Where were we? Hmm. No, I can't remember the name of the place. Uh, we were simply in a place which had a good meeting hall, and then we went out to look at various things. So we went down to Pech, um, into Bud- to um, Budapest, uh, Lake Balaton, and Mithras was quite strong on that conference, as you, you'd expect. Yeah, yeah. Still going strong now as well in terms of just studies that keep being produced on it, yeah. <laughs> myself included. But, uh, I was once told by a, uh, an eminent professor of Roman archaeology, who shall remain nameless, uh, uh, he told me that there was nothing else to write on Mithras, so I went and did a PhD on it <laughs> with, with a slight chip on my shoulder. But I think sometimes that helps as well. The charitable thing to say would be that he was challenging you and encouraging you. Yeah, I think so. I think so, actually. Maybe. Was, <laughs> I'll, give him, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt in that regard. Um, but yeah, there's so many things to actually talk about, and I wasn't quite sure where to start with. One of the things I mentioned in my email that is quite interesting because of something I was actually just going back over earlier and reading, was that when I went to start doing the podcast... It's turned to this thing where I talk to people about working particularly on the Roman world, although we kind of branched out into our areas of antiquity and how they got into it and where they'd like to see the field of research go in future. And originally, though, my actual idea was to mainly focus it around the study of Roman Britain and talking about people, talk to people who study Roman Britain, but more widely than just academics and talking to people like museum people, reenactors, etc., and talking about what they did, but also talking about what Roman Britain meant to them. Mm-hmm. And I was going to give it the name My Roman Britain after your, your own volume. Because I was looking at something earlier. It was a piece that you wrote, which I've got the quote here. You ended it where, oh, it was for, I thought it was for track. It was for track. Is it, you wrote at the very end of an article in track. Is there a recipe for a better future? It sounds suspicious, suspiciously as if everyone must write their Roman Britain and all will be revealed, which I thought was interesting just in terms of that was kind of what I was hoping to do with the podcast I hadn't read that at the time but for me your book My Roman Britain I, I think is, is, is a great book we, we have on our reading list for Roman Britain uh, and I encourage students to look at it how do you feel that though since you wrote that book The Study of Roman Britain do you think it's pushed on a lot because you I mean My Roman Britain as you say was your own particular take. And I think what you were sort of saying in that article is sometimes we have this problem of we are trying to develop this, or perhaps people can try to develop this idea of Rome Britain and we all are coming together and creating this image together that's all very uniform, but actually everybody has their different perspective on, on Rome Britain. Do you think there's do you think there's still there's that issue there that people don't take it, that there is actually different perspectives on what Roman Britain is, and to one person it will never be the same? Sorry, that's probably quite a big Lord, question. Yes. <laughs> um, I think one of the problems is that it's never grown up. It's still in the stage of... Well, another thing which I thought you were possibly going to quote was uh, I did a review of 
to Roman Britons and ended up saying that something like, from these books, you would think that it was a, a nice, well-guarded sandpit in which the toddler may be safely left to play, whereas I regarded as a wild, overgrown garden where anything might happen. Mm. And the sandpit, it's the trouble is the sandpit mentality, which is very elitist and very insulated. Elitist, I think that must come from the first people, well, not the first people who studied it, but the, uh, the mainline people in the late 19th century, 20th century, who were, for better or worse, um, and it's an unfortunate word now, but I mean, they were of the elite. They were lieutenant colonels and honourables and people of independent means. A problem I see coming from that is that, well, the natives don't matter. Mm. Natives and foreigners are irrelevant. Not today they aren't, by any means, but in the late British Empire, then you couldn't really expect a retired lieutenant colonel to think much about the natives, because they were not part of civilization then. And also, when he was back on his estate in Britain, he didn't really think about foreigners, for foreigners, you know, funny people with funny ideas. And my feeling is that Roman Britain grew up in that atmosphere so that, well, when I say it hasn't grown up, there's still, I think, quite a lot of courses on Roman Britain which are about Roman towns. Well, we know what towns are, we've still got them. We know what villas are, you know, nice big houses in the countryside. And then, oh yes, and then Hadrian's Wall or something like that. So it would be interesting to do a survey of courses being taught and how many fit into the towns, villas and Hadrian's Wall. Mm. And there are very few publications. I think Leo Rive would be one of the very few um, I haven't seen him quoted for decades, but what was it, town and country in Roman Britain? And he did, to some extent, break the mould. But in general, well, it takes me back to when I was first teaching Roman Britain in the Institute of Archaeology. This would be the early 70s. And I wasn't given any particular guidelines except that either Mark Hassel or John Wilkes did the art, the military side, so I was doing the civilian side. And at that time, students came from various other places in London University to what they were 5.15 to 6.15 to fit in with everybody's timetables. And uh, they were mainly from history, ancient history, history, classics courses. And all went well for a year or two. 
And then I, I think I started off by setting the best exam question I've ever set, which was the third century in Britain marks the division between the Iron Age and the medieval period. Discuss. That, that was the last straw. I didn't know this was going on. There was a meeting, heads of departments, colleges, goodness knows what. Our students are not happy. They've never heard of the Iron Age. They don't do medieval stuff. They're very upset about all these seeds and bones and, and, and prospecting and things. Um, this, this won't do. So the meeting was very amicable, apparently, and it was agreed that um, either Mark Hassel or John Wilkes would take over the civilian part, and I'd be given my own little course of, which we called Roman Britain Materials and Methods. It was interesting. Oh, well, I mean, that demonstrates the way that Roman Britain was thought of anywhere except in the Institute of Archaeology because it just it wasn't archaeological it was virtually historical mm. and it was interesting again this came as a, an after information um, Fergus Miller who I thought very highly of um, and I think I, I'd reckon one of the most sort of classical ancient historians apparently said at the end of the meeting well you know well, hmm, thinking about it, there may be something in that question. And that patted myself on the back <laughs> at that point. And, uh, um, so, can it develop? Hmm. Well, there again, I, I begin to wonder in that it feels very often when you're talking to someone who's not up to speed in the sort of thing I'm thinking about, as if they've been born with a, an idea of Roman Britain, which is somehow essential to their makeup. It's as if there's something there which must not, ought not to be attacked or changed or they need that as a firm basis, as it were, for thinking how everything happened after that. Mm. Have you read David Massingley's Imperial Possession? Part I've been, I've looked through it and read bits of it. Yes. Yeah, I think David. I think David's work is probably one of the best things to come out in. Well, I say recent years, it was a while ago now, but he's very big on things like identity. His model is describing identity, but talking about the Roman world in ways that traditionally people didn't or thinking about it. But I find it very interesting. I mean, I taught, I taught the Roman Britain module here last year, but a lot of what I spoke about was, I think, kind of as you're saying, the fascinating thing I find about Roman Britain and how we talk about it now is largely about how Britain deals with its own imperial legacy. It's because they're very much intertwined, I think, because you're saying the the people that started the study of Roman Britain were in that social milieu of the British Empire. Mm. And mm. I mean, recently I've been writing stuff as a kind of tangent off of Mithras about Kipling as well and his presentation of the Roman world. But I just find it very, yeah, I find that very interesting like what you're saying about where the study originates. And I think it's kind of evolved over time very much in that, in relationship with how Britain's 
gone about his own imperial legacy. I know Andy Gardner's wrote an article a few years ago talking about the end of Roman Britain in comparison to like the end of the British Empire and now where we're at in terms of things like going on like Brexit and stuff, like the end of empire and the effect it has. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, yeah, I find that fascinating. One of the questions I ask students is, was it nicer to live in a villa or a roundhouse? Because I think a lot of people come in with the presumption that a villa would be nicer to live in, but then what good is a villa if you can't afford to heat most of the rooms and it gets chilly and drafty and bits of plaster are falling off the wall? When you could live in a roundhouse, which is quite nice. Well, depending on your circumstance, I guess. But even still, it's uh, I don't know, there's something to be said. I don't see why necessarily a villa is better than living around house but people presume that because of the skew that i suppose like the archaeological record that has created and where people look at masonry or have looked more at masonry than you know, thinking about for example timber structures but uh, mm-hmm. yeah although you look slightly un- uh, unconvinced by that <laughs> well have you tried living in a round house no i mean that is that's a good ah. point uh, i well I, I know people that have so that say it's not so bad well at least uh, well how long for well, probably in a very short time, actually. So that's mm. still a good point. I mean, yeah, no, I see what you mean. But I, I think it, it's kind of... Uh, the point is, I guess, is that it's relative to people. Do people want to necessarily live in a... Do you want to live in a bigger house? I don't think... I mean, I don't personally have any aspirations to live in a, in a big house. I don't think I know what to do with a really big house. But, but then there is the problem of being programmed to live in a round house. Where was it? Oh yes, it was Invasion and Response um, collection of lectures at Cambridge, uh, a conference at Cambridge. And Ian Hodder's father, at least I think it's Ian Hodder's father, uh, had dealt with Africa quite a bit. And he told us all about colonial buildings in smaller African communities which were the colonial powers ways of getting at the indigenous peoples but when the British moved out or the French moved out or whoever the natives of the place just were totally uninfluenced and were totally uninterested in these buildings and just left them as they were. Mm. Um, And that was backed up by somebody, an Italian archaeologist, I think, who looked at the buildings in Italian Libya, well, Libya under Italian control, um, and possibly British control as well. And uh, they built lots and lots of lovely flats for people to move into. Um, yes, they they often moved into them, but they already had their way of life, which didn't fit into flats. Mm-hmm. So they lived in them as if they were living in their own homes. Um, and the shape and size and appointments of the rooms were to some extent irrelevant to them. So there's a there's always a built-in element, I think, both in the people, I was going to say performing Roman Britain, I mean the people who are actually there and being it. So there's a built-in element to what they do, just as I am afraid there's a built-in element to the people who interpret it today. Mm. So, so 
makes it a very, very... I mean, you mentioned David Mattingly. Well, he's out of the, out of the discussion, as it were, because he and a few other people have taken all those things on board and are working with them. The people I'm worried about are the people who are training primary school teachers, all of whom have to do Roman Britain in year about age of seven or something like that. And what are they actually teaching to those primary school children? Mm. And does this partly account for the fact that when the primary school children grow up, they've got this inbuilt view of Roman Britain, which is almost impossible to shift. So do you think in terms of... But you were talking earlier when, about doing things like time team and that they wanted they had questions for you that they wanted answers to. Was that the sort of thing that you found there, like when you talked about things like, for example, in Britain? Because I'm just thinking in terms of the dynamic of something like the media as well, of kind of replicating that idea. Was there a kind of an idea of Roman Britain or whatever they were asking you they wanted you to conform to that kind of reflected um, that? Oh, I think so, yeah. So if there was a Roman building on the site, then it was... Well, if they were digging it, there had been evidence that there was something there which would suggest it was fairly solid, which would suggest it was a stone building, preferably for them with mosaic floors and so on. So, yes. Mm. Um, the own. Well, I only, I only did a few of them, but I wonder if there are any where they went somewhere which had produced Roman vines, but where there was nothing visible on an aerial photograph or on um, any form of detection. I suspect they wouldn't have bothered to go there. Mm. Because... There wouldn't be anything for the viewers to see except for holes in the ground and things like that. And you can't expect, whoops, dear, I was being being elitist. Uh, you can't expect the ordinary viewer to revel in round, more or less unformed holes in the ground or ditches going. I mean, they, they're just not television. Mm. unless you home in on that and say um, sort of get fire up the audience and say now this can be really interesting because there was such and such in the topsoil so that's why we came here and when we got here this now what do they mean what's this hole doing what's that you can do it but you've got to prepare your audience for it I think Mm. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I always find it fascinating. We talk a lot about things like the the media and how it affects, but also you're saying it's um yeah, there are big questions about when it starts with people and when like do we break away from those ideas that are in childhood. Just going back to when I was talking about Kipling, the way he presents the Roman world and uh, Richard Hingley wrote a book a few years ago where I was Imperial Officers and mm -hmm. English gentlemen. Mm -hmm. It's like uh, Richard says in that about um, I think it was that he was talking about how sometimes these ideas that we get in childhood, particularly from the stuff that we read, um, stick with people. And sometimes actually in the academic sphere, we don't realise the necessarily the impact that always has. You're saying like sometimes you can be like 
here's the evidence that shows it's not like that. But sometimes it's very difficult for people to mm. break away from those mm. ideas that mm. they've, they've, they've grown up with, essentially. There's a, there's like a mental connection that forms there. I mean, just, just on another note, I've got to ask, I mean, one of the things, I mean, going back to my room in Britain and with so much of your work that I find great is the fact that your own voice comes through in it very, very clearly, which might sound like a slightly odd thing to say, but in terms of, we so often, or I so often find that when I read academic works or works talking about archaeology or ancient history, that they you could put several works side by side and you wouldn't be able to tell the difference that they were written by different authors all the time. Mm-hmm. They, they can be very, very same. In fact, I was talking to students this week about essay writing, first years, and uh, one of them, I gave them some examples of previous essays or excerpts and got them to basically mark them and say, what did you think of these? And uh, one person criticised one of the essays because they didn't like the way the person had used I in it. That they, they had used their, um, they were using the first person, which... I mean, you know, as so many of these things, it's subjective as to what people want, how they, the preferred style in which they like to read. I mean, I've submitted enough journal articles now to know that people don't like the way I write necessarily all the time. Uh, and other people find it fine. But, um, but as I say, I mean, one of the things that, uh, I mean, personally, I, I think it makes it easier to read a book, an article, or whatever, is when it's distinctively, I think, in that person's voice. Like, they're not just trying to present it as a very formal academic work they're coming through and also as linking back to what we were saying a moment ago because the thing is is that obviously in everything we do as we're saying it's subjective as well it's their own opinion so trying to sell it too much as a completely scientific fact sometimes I find in a very dry way which tries to make it maybe sound more authoritative than it actually Mm, is mm, can mm. be quite misleading but I was just wondering how is that has that ever been something that you've I suppose actually, yeah. Have you ever had any pushback on? Have you ever submitted something and somebody said that they weren't too sure in the way you wrote it, or have you, or is that something where you started off trying to write in a different way and got to a point where you were just like, no, I just have to write my own way? I was just wondering your thoughts on that, and also as well when you read other stuff, does it? Do you find that sometimes that you wish people probably would inject maybe their own personality a little bit more into what they're writing? Usually, yes. It does depend whether they're conveying facts or opinions. I I don't think a description with a drawing of a deep section would necessarily help be helped by a, a personal style. Mm. I think I'd probably rather read a, an absolutely straight-faced um, layer number 17 was under 16 and it was a gravel spread and so on. Um, when they start interpreting, then, and that's another thing when we could go off on a uh, another trail of whether you, how and when you distinguish between what you think is fact and what you think is interpretation. Um, but... I think if it's interpretation, then it's got to be, you've got to make it clear that it's your own. Um, and I think that sometimes to some people is quite difficult because they think that you're put, laying down the law on the interpretation when what in fact you're doing is saying, look, I've given you the facts. Now, the way I see it is this. 
but you're welcome to pick up the facts and run with them in a completely different direction. Mm. Um, yes, there is, a, there is a danger. It happened in the last week or two. Um, somebody gave me uh, a report to read. That's dangerous because if they say, what do you think about it? Then I tend to give it absolutely straight and in some cases, this really shocks people. Mm. Um, in this case, I made some comments, but I had written at the top not to be taken too large T, large O, large O, too seriously. Right? Then there was an email quite recently saying, well, yep, you know, the points you made were were very valid and, and I really should have been able to do everything you said but there just hasn't been time and I've got to get the manuscript in. So I simply wrote back, email back saying but I said don't take it too seriously. Mm -hmm. um, um, so that that is difficult. Um, I can think, think of one case where somebody who has always been on good and we still are on good terms sent a, quite a long report and I weighed into it and suggested changing that for that and putting that before that and the section on so-and-so was really not too uh, happy um, and there was dead silence for six months then eventually our correspondence started up again and all was well, but it had obviously come as a, a nasty shock. On the other hand, there have been people who knew what they were in for and gave me the thing to read because of that. Mm. So, you win a few, you, you lose a few. <laughs> Such is life. Um... As saying, in, in your own case, though, have you had any kind of pushback in terms of... Because I think it just, like, when I read your stuff, I mean, you opened My Own Britain by, I can't remember the exact phrasing of it now, where you said this book could have... A lot of people said this book shouldn't have been shouldn't be written in this way or something like that, or I can't remember the exact phrasing of it. I have a copy of me. But I just think, like, if I tried to submit something now with that opening phrasing to, you know, the main routes that we have to go to publish now... I'd automatically be told, like, you can't oh, start yeah, no. that way. <laughs> well, that, that, that was one of the main reasons for writing it, that I knew I was going to publish it myself. Therefore, I didn't have to take any notice of anybody. Yes, that's right. Um, early on, it said something like, I'd written this um, saying exactly what I think in the way I want, mm -hmm. and so on. Um, and that just doesn't get through. You get a response back. This is not the sort of language that we expect in the journal of... <laughs> I've had that once or twice, yes. Yeah. Um, well, right. I mean, it's, it's unfortunate if it stands out uh, too obviously. But you can get it in quite delicately sometimes mm. with a bit of practice. Um, no, no. I mean, the usual... Con uh, the usual reaction is, um, yes, well, very Riesian, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm about to imply that would be Riesian as a, as a way of... Oh, yes, it. yes, it, it's definitely in use as, a, as an adjective. 
We have now Reesian and Reese period, so your name is, <laughs> spreads far and wide in different ways. Yeah, I mean, we should just go back quickly. I mean, I think there is a certain irony there, though, when, uh, going back to what we talked about previously, of Roman Britain, that the, the Oxford Handbook of Roman Britain was dedicated to you as well. I just found it interesting in just terms of the idea that some people, um, you could submit something at various points in your career and somebody would be like, we don't like the way this is written and we don't want it. And then you end up having the Oxford Handbook of Rome written dedicated to you. I don't know. Maybe I'm just one of those people that likes to be a bit like, yeah. I think, <laughs> I think, I think ironic would be a, yeah, a suitable, yeah. suitable word. Well, like the paper on um, the end of Roman Britain, which that was the conference John Casey organised um, in Durham, 1978 and gathered the papers in and I did my uh, the end of Rome written thing rundown of towns and so on um, and gave it to David Hands and um, sorry David Walker and Anthony Hands and they said no sorry if that paper is in we can't publish it in BAR oh, whatever it was um, so John Casey rang up into terrible state and said, what do we do? And I said, no, 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 I'll take the paper away. Um, and the volume went ahead and was published. Uh, and I gave mine to Barry Cundiff, who was editing World Archaeology, I think. Um, and it went in the next issue of that. Mm. So, yeah, yeah. But that that was not on style. That was on... Interpretation. That's just quite interesting. Like they just wouldn't they wouldn't publish it because of the way you interpreted the evidence. It's just I mean, as I was saying earlier, it's all subjective anyway. But then again, I suppose actually, yes, I've said that I've submitted stuff before, which it well, now got published. But uh, I don't understand why it couldn't get published in certain journals. I think there was more to it than just simply why. Well, saying. it's it's bound, <laughs> it's bound to depend on referees. Yeah. If if you'd selected the referees, it would have been thoroughly approved of and published mm. but if you've got no control over the referees which I suppose is fair yeah no absolutely although I, I don't know I think in the <laughs> in that case I mean I think it does happen in other cases well you don't want to be able to select the referees yeah you, you need the you need people to that aren't necessarily too positively attached to your work although it might still end up happening but also as well I think in that case that I got negative pushback because of just people's perceptions of the site. That actually goes back to what we were saying earlier, that were very imbued, um, that were very difficult to challenge because I thought mm. I had an argument which mm. was sound. I, I actually didn't say in it that what I was saying was definitive. I simply said it was another interpretation of the structure based on the available evidence, which I thought stood up to scrutiny, but I couldn't get through with that. And then I sent it somewhere else and it was I got a very different reaction. But, um, but that's interesting in itself, as I say, going back to what we were saying earlier about it can be very hard sometimes for people to break away with ideas that they've become very, very accustomed to. Oh, no, no that, I think that's been a bit hard on them. They are not aware that they, they've got those ideas. Mm. They're, not, they're not producing their ideas. You're, you're, what you or I are saying simply does not mean anything in the way that they are constructed. Mm. I don't. I don't think there's an argument going on in their heads. 
it, it's it's all or nothing. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I don't... In, in, in the best cases. Yeah. I mean, in some cases, yeah, then clearly you can see what's happening. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's interesting, because we're getting back around, actually, to Chess a bit later, because you, you went on to publish and study and stuff on the, the, the later Roman Empire. But actually, I wanted to take you back to the very start. Because one of the things I found fascinating was the fact that you, you didn't start off in a professional capacity or a university capacity doing archaeology. You started biochemistry, mm. right? Mm. So you went to... It was UCL, right, to study Definitely, biochemistry. Yeah. Um, so... How 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 does that happen? How so was I'm guessing though before you went to university. I mean, particularly coming because you're originally from Sirencester, right? As well, yeah. um, coming from somewhere like Sirencester, I guess growing up you could not be aware of Roman archaeology it's, and Roman history. Could not help, not yeah. Be aware, yeah. Um, and then, but then, how comes? Yeah. So why? So I suppose there's, there's several parts to this. Is when did your interest start, and then why go to university to do? biochemistry and then how did you end up coming coming around to do focusing on archaeology as a, as a career trajectory how are we off, <laughs> how are we off on time yes. um i can't remember i can remember digging holes at the age of six and finding things goodness knows what they were i mean they were probably mostly flower pot um, and broken cups and saucers, but we found them and kept them and so on. The second hole was about eight or nine, and the same thing happened. But I can't, I must have been taken to the Corinium Museum, but I can't remember that. And it must have been very early if I was already looking for Roman remains at the age of six. Mm-hmm. So then through grammar school, um, then uh, there was a section through the town wall because the sewer was going through there and that was professionally done and we were possibly taken to have a look at the trench but certainly the excavator came and gave us a talk afterwards and I think... That was the second form, was 12-year-old. Um, I embarrassed her a bit. By, uh, she said, you know, we knew that it was such and such date because of the Roman pottery. And I put my hand up and said, how did you know it was Roman pottery? Which took a bit of answering to <laughs> in the middle of a talk. Um, then we got up to GCSE. And that was getting very boring. So I knew Mrs Clifford uh, um, was working out at Bantington. So I just cycled out there and said, um, please could I dig? And started off there. And the next year I kept on going to Bantington. But I thought, well, why shouldn't I? You know, I'd, I'd learnt the basics. And I'd got an eight-page booklet um, from the Ashmolean Museum uh, saying how you dug, how to dig, which is a very good introductory course. And so I thought, right, okay, I'm qualified, I'm going to have my own dig as well as going out to Badgington. So I did. And then Miss Taylor got to hear of this 
I think through Donald Atkinson, ex-professor of, of um, archaeology and classics at Manchester, who was retired and the curator of the museum. And I think he acted as part of the intelligence system. M.V. Taylor edited Roman Britain, uh, Journal of Roman Studies for years and years and years um, from Oxford. And Professor Richmond, Ian Richmond, arrived as the first professor of archaeology of the Roman provinces. And Miss Taylor took him on an inaugural tour in her Austin 7, which later had an afterlife as the hero, heroine of Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Oh, no way. Right. So it, was in, yes, it wasn't in too good state when she was running it. <laughs> um, so they'd heard this schoolboy was digging. So Miss Taylor and um, Ian Richmond came and looked at the dig and had a chat. Uh-huh. And he came back as curator of the museum. So he was there occasionally. I used to go and see Donald Atkinson after school. And he taught me about Roman coins and so on. Then I did my own little dig and identified the coins and took them into him to check. So when you're saying you're doing your own little dig, was yes. it just you, you and anybody else or was it just... Oh, two or three school friends. Yes. Oh wow, this like was... you just kind of set up and just did it? Like... This was 15, 16, yes. Yeah. Um, I identified the coins, I took them into um, Donald Atkinson and he checked them and said, yeah, yeah. And then he said, look, I'm sorry, but, you know, these are quite important. They'll have to come to the museum. My face must have fallen. And he said, but look, I've got a, a little collection of coins, all sorts of things that I used to use for teaching the students at Manchester. How about we do a swap? And you have those and the museum has the coins you dug up. Do you know what any of those coins were that you handed over at all? No, oh, so, oh, they were to keep. Oh. So I identified them all yeah. and he checked them. And um, I've given them on to Peter Guest now, uh, but I had quite a few of them. And that's what started me off on coins. I was digging at Badgenden. That meant I met all, the, not all, but people like Wheeler, Oh. And Glyn Daniel and Derek Allen, Iron Age Coins, and Stuart Piggott, and Claire Fell, and Molly Cotton. So by the time I was in the sixth form, I got this collection of tutors and supervisors and friends, and then thought what to do. Well, the only place in 1958 that was doing a degree in archaeology, I think, was Cambridge. And I knew perfectly well that if you went to Cambridge, you had to get through a year of sludge before you go, sorry, environmental and prehistoric <laughs> and other, so on, um, general archaeology, uh, before you could specialise in Roman and uh, later. That didn't attract me. I'd done gone into the sixth form doing physics, chemistry, maths and biology. 
and well, biochemistry quite appealed to me and I'm, I'm glad I did because it kept me thoroughly factual and numerical mm-hmm. whereas if I'd done classics or anything like that the numerical side would never have developed I don't think um, how far have we got right a degree um, suggested to Ian Richmond might be interesting to go to Oxford and do an MA he was very blunt about it and said no it'd be obviously obvious you're prop- obvious you're propping up your weak degree to to two um he was quite right um so i carried on with my coins taught chemistry for three years saved up money and i'd been doing a lot of british coins uh, sorry coins from britain and wondered what was going on in the rest of the empire Saved up money for three years and then had three months in France going all round collecting information there. Money ran out. Two more years teaching. And then I was digging. I, Charles Thomas handed over the digging on Iona sometime during that period. And I was up there with a superb wonderful character who financed the digging and we were sitting on the edge of the trench and I was telling him about the coin work and so on and saying somehow I've got to take another year off because it's really piling up and I've got to sort it out he thought for just a minute or two and said um, why don't you do it properly and go somewhere and and do do it as a thesis I said, well, I couldn't possibly afford it. And that's all right. I'll, I'll fund you for four years. Wow. So the um, the funding was sorted out in ten minutes. So then I talked to Freya about it, and we went through all the various possibilities. And it was going really well, and he was demolishing my mother's chocolate sponge cake <laughs> at a great rate. Um <laughs> And then his face fell, he looked very serious, and said, well, of course, yes, all this is all right, but of course you'll have to be interviewed by a, a member of um, what was it, uh, human uh, faculty of humaniores, whatever it is. My face fell, his moustache twitched, and he said, but you just have been, haven't you? <laughs> for listening to Coffee and Circuses. The Roman poet Juvenal once said, people will be content as long as you give them bread and circuses. But if I'm going to talk to somebody, I'd rather do it over coffee than bread. You can find me, David Walsh, on Twitter at D underscore J underscore Walsh or contact me about the show at coffeeandcircuses at gmail.com. That's with a full and. Don't forget, you can subscribe, rate and review the show on iTunes and Spotify. Big thank you to the Institute of Classical Studies who support the podcast via one of their public engagement grants. The theme tune is La Cajora 
by Roll Music, available for download at freemusicarchive.org. And in the background right now, you can hear an 8-bit version of the Indiana Jones theme by Miles Metal, originally by John Williams, but you all know that, which is available on YouTube. Thanks again for listening, and remember, it's better to be a gladiator than a Diocletian.